Section 1 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum, Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology, by the Museum of History and Technology, United States. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Paper 34. The 1893 Durier Automobile in the Museum of History and Technology by Don H. Bergable. Part 1. During the last decade of the 19th century, a number of American engineers and mechanics were working diligently to develop a practical, self-propelled vehicle employing an internal combustion engine as the motive force. Among these men were Charles and Frank Durier, who began work on this type of vehicle about 1892. This carriage was operated on the streets of Springfield, Massachusetts, in 1893, where its trials were noted in the newspapers. Now preserved in the Museum of History and Technology, it is a prized exhibit in the collection of early automobiles. It is the purpose of this paper to present some of the facts discovered during the restoration of this vehicle, to show the problems that faced its builders, and to describe their solutions. An attempt also has been made to correlate all this information with reports of the now almost legendary day-to-day -day experiences of the Duriers as published by the brothers in various booklets and as related by Frank Durier during two interviews recorded on tape in 1956 and 1957 while he was visiting the Smithsonian. The author, Don H. Berkable, is on the staff of the Museum of History and Technology in the Smithsonian Institution's United States National Museum. Of the numerous American automotive pioneers, perhaps among the best known are Charles and Frank Durier. Beginning their work of automobile building in Springfield, Massachusetts, and after much rebuilding, they constructed their first successful vehicle in 1892 and 1893. No sooner was this finish than Frank, working alone, began work on a second vehicle having a two-cylinder engine. With this automobile, sufficient capital was attracted in 1895 to form the Durier Motor Wagon Company, in which both brothers were among the stockholders and directors. A short time after the formation of the company, this second automobile was entered by the company in the Chicago Times-Herald automobile race, on Thanksgiving Day, November 28, 1895, where Frank Durier won a victory over the other five contestants, two electric automobiles, and three Benz machines imported from Germany. In the year following this victory, Frank, as engineer in charge of design and construction, completed the plans begun earlier for a more powerful automobile. During 1896, the company turned out 13 identical automobiles, the first example of mass production in American automotive history. Even while these cars were under construction, Frank was planning a lighter vehicle, one of which was completed in October of 1896. This machine was driven to another victory by Frank Dorier on November 14, 1896, when he competed once again with the European-built cars in the Liberty Day Run from London to Brighton. The decision to race and demonstrate their autos abroad was the result of the company's desire to interest foreign capital. Yet Frank later felt they might better have used their time and money by concentrating on building cars and selling them to the local market. 
Subsequently, in the fall of 1898, Frank arranged for the sale of his and Charles' interest in the company, and thereafter the brothers pursued separate careers. Frank, in 1901, entered into a contract with the J. Stevens Arms and Tool Company of Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts, which built automobiles under his supervision. This association led, in 1904, to the formation of the Stevens Durier Company, of which Irving Page was president and Frank Durier was vice president and chief engineer. This company produced, during its ten-year existence, a number of popular and well-known models, among them a light six, known as the Model U, in 1907, a larger four-cylinder called the Model X in 1908, and a larger six, the Model Y, in 1909. In 1914, when Stevens withdrew from the company, Frank obtained control. The following year, he sold the plants and machinery, liquidated the company, and, due to ill health, retired. Charles, in the meantime, located in Reading, Pennsylvania, where he built autos under the name of the Durier Power Company. Here, and later in Philadelphia, under the name of the Durier Motor Corporation and other corporate names, he continued for a number of years to build automobiles, vacuum cleaners, and other mechanical devices. Until the time of his death in 1938, he practiced as a consulting engineer. Early Automotive Experience Born in 1861 near Canton, Illinois, Charles E. Durier had learned the trade of a mechanic following his graduation from high school and subsequently turned his interests to bicycle repair. He and his brother, James Frank, eight years younger, eventually left Illinois and moved to Washington, D.C., where they were employed in the bicycle shop of H.S. Owen, one of that city's leading bicycle dealers and importers. While in Washington, Charles became a regular reader of the Patent Office Gazette, an act which undoubtedly influenced his later work with automobiles. A short time later, probably in 1889, Charles contracted with a firm in Rockaway, New Jersey, to construct bicycles for him. But their failure to make delivery as promised caused him to go to Chicopee, Massachusetts, where he contracted with the Ames Manufacturing Company to do his work. Moving there in 1890, he obtained for his brother a position as toolmaker with the Ames Company. Thus, Frank Durier, as he was later known, also became located in Chicopee, a northern suburb of Springfield. During the summer of 1891, Charles found the bicycle business left him some spare time, and the gasoline-powered carriages he had read of earlier came constantly into his mind in these periods of idleness. He and Frank studied several books on gasoline engines, among them one by an English writer, titled an author unknown. This described the auto four-stroke cycle, as now used. Some engineers, however, were concerned because this engine, on the completion of the exhaust stroke, had not entirely evacuated all of the products of combustion. The Atkinson engine, patented in 1887, was one of the attempts to solve this, as well as several other problems, thus creating a more efficient cycle. This engine was designed so that the exhaust stroke carried the piston all the way to the head of the engine, while the compression stroke only moved the piston far enough to sufficiently compress the mixture. The unusual linkage necessary to create these unequal strokes in the Atkinson engine 
made it seem impractical for a carriage engine, where compactness was desired. Going to Hartford, Connecticut, possibly on business relating to his bicycle work, Charles visited the Hartford Machine Screw Company, where the Daimler-type engine was being produced, but after examining it, he felt it was too heavy and clumsy for his purpose. Also in Hartford, he talked over the problem of a satisfactory engine with C.E. Hawley, an employee of the Pope Manufacturing Company, makers of the Columbia Bicycle. Hawley, searching for a way to construct an engine that would perform in a manner similar to the Atkinson, yet would have the lightness and compactness necessary for a carriage engine, suggested an idea that Charles believed had some merit. This idea, involving the use of what the Duriers later called a free piston, was eventually to be incorporated in their first engine. Construction begins. Back in Chicopee again, Charles began planning his first horseless carriage. Frank later stated that they leaned heavily on the Benz patents in their work, but while the later engine and transmission show evidence of this, only the Benz manner of placing the engine and the flywheel seemed to have been employed in the original Dorier plan. Charles reversed the engine so that the flywheel was to the front rather than to the rear, as in the Benz patent, but made use of Benz's vertical crankshaft so that the flywheel rotated in a horizontal plane. Previously, most engines had used vertical flywheels. Benz, believing that this practice would cause difficulty in steering a propelled carriage, explained his reason for changing this feature in his U.S. Patent 385087, issued June 26, 1888. In motors hitherto used, the flywheels have been attached to a horizontal shaft or axle and have thus been made to revolve in a vertical plane, since the horizontal shaft is best adapted to the transmission of power. If, however, in this case we should use a heavy rotating mass, corresponding to the power employed and revolving rapidly in a vertical plane, the power to manage the vehicle or boat would become very much lessened, as the flywheel continues to revolve in its plane. I therefore so designed the apparatus that its crankshaft X has a vertical position and its flywheel Y revolves in a horizontal plane. By this means, the vehicle is not only easily controlled, but also the greatest safety is attained against capsizing. To the Durier plan, Benz may also have contributed the idea for positioning the countershaft though its location is sufficiently obvious that Charles may have had no need for copying Benz. Charles wisely deferred from Benz by placing the flywheel forward, thus eliminating the need for the long driving belt of the Benz carriage. Yet he did reject the bevel gears used by Benz, which might well have been retained, as Frank was later to prove by designing a workable transmission that incorporated such bevel gears. The initial plan, as conceived by Charles, also included the details of the axles, the steering gear, countershaft with its friction drum, the two-piece angle-iron frame upon which the countershaft bearings were mounted, and the free-piston engine with its ignition tube, since hot-tube ignition was to be employed. No provision was made, however, for a burner to heat the tube, nor had a carburetor been designed though it had been decided not to use a surface tank carburetor. The plans called for no muffler or starting arrangement. 
Many engines of that period were started simply by turning the flywheel with the hands, and Charles felt this method was sufficient for his carriage. The Ames plant customarily had a summer shutdown during August. Thus, during August of 1891, Charles and Frank had access to a nearly empty plant in which they could carry on experiments and make up working drawings of the proposed vehicle. It cannot now be conclusively stated whether any parts were made for the car during August or the remainder of the year. It is more likely that the brothers attempted to complete a set of drawings. Frank Harrington, chief draftsman at Ames, may have helped out at this time. From Charles' statement of April 14, 1937, it is learned that he did prepare drawings during 1892. The first contemporary record of any work on vehicles is a bill, dated January 21, 1892, for a drawing made by George W. Howard and Company. This drawing was made in the fall of 1891 by Charles A. Bartlett, a member of the Howard firm and a neighbor of Charles Durier, according to a statement by Charles in the Automobile Trade Journal of January 10, 1925. He was then also of the opinion that this drawing may not have had anything to do with the carriage they were about to assemble, but a notation found by Charles at a later date has led him to believe that it possibly concerned a business-type vehicle he had discussed with an unidentified Mr. Snow. By early 1892, Charles needed capital to finance his venture, an old carriage to attach his inventions to, a place to work, and a mechanic to do the work. On March 26th, he stopped by the Smith Carriage Company and looked over a selection of used buggies and phaetons. He finally decided on a rather well-used ladies' phaeton, which he purchased for $70. The leather dash was in so deplorable a state it would have to be recovered before the carriage went onto the road, and the leather fenders it once possessed had previously been removed. Yet the upholstery appeared to be in satisfactory condition and the candle lamps were intact. Two days later, Charles was able to interest Irwin F. Markham of Springfield, sufficiently to obtain his financial aid in the project. A contract was drawn up between the two men, which stated that Mr. Markham was to put up $1,000, for which he received a five-tenths share of the venture. When the $1,000 had been used... He then had the option to continue his aid until the project had been carried to a successful climax and retain his half-share, or to refuse further funds and relinquish four of his five-tenths interest in the business. Had he eventually chosen the latter, Charles would obviously have to seek assistance elsewhere. That same day, March 28th, Charles found working space and machinery available at John W. Russell and Sons Company in Springfield. The Russells had recently completed a large government order of shells for the famous dynamite guns later used on board the cruiser Vesuvius in the Spanish-American War, and this left an entire second floor, approximately 35 by 85 feet, virtually unoccupied, according to an affidavit of William J. Russell of April 30, 1926. Now ready to begin the actual work, Charles hired his brother Frank to start construction. Frank started about the 1st of April, receiving a raise of about 10% over the salary he had received at Ames. Before the vehicle was complete, a number of other men performed work on some of the parts, among them William Dietz, who had been hired by Charles 
primarily to work on bicycles in the same area, but who occasionally assisted on the carriage. Russell Company records show time charged against Charles Durier by six other Russell employees, W.J. Russell, P. Colgan, C.E. Merrick, T. Shea, L.J. Parmalee, and A.A. Poisson. It is Frank Durier's remembrance that he started work on Monday, April 4th. He first removed the body, with its springs, and placed it on a pair of wooden horses where it remained until the summer of the following year. The next step was to remove the rear axle and take it to a blacksmith shop where the old axle spindles were cut off and welded to a new drop-center axle. Following this, the front axle spindles were removed, the ends of the axle slotted, and a webbed C-shaped piece carrying the kingpin bearings was fitted into each slot, braced from underneath by short brackets, which were riveted and brazed in place. The old spindles were then welded to the center of offset kingpins, which in turn were mounted in the bearings in a manner similar to that in which the frame of the Columbia high-wheeled bicycle was mounted on its fork. Arms welded to the lower end of the kingpins were connected by tie rods to an arm on the lower end of the vertical steering column located on the center of the axle. While work on the running gear advanced, some progress was made in the construction of the engine. Patterns for the castings were fabricated, most of them by Charles Marshall on Taylor Street, and castings were poured. The body or main casting of the engine resembled a length of cast-iron pipe. It had no bosses or lugs cast on, nor any water jacket, for they thought the engine would be kept cool merely by being placed in the open air. The front end of the engine was secured to the vehicle by four bolts, which passed through the halves of the bearings and onto four projections on the opened end of the engine. As the crankshaft of this engine was retained in constructing the present engine, it is logical to assume that the bearings were the same also. The head was cast as a thick disc, with both intake and exhaust valves located therein, and was bolted onto the flanged head-end of the engine. Inside the cylinder was the strange arrangement previously suggested by C.E. Hawley. To the connecting rod was attached a rather ordinary ringed piston, over which was fitted a free ringless piston, machined to fit closely the cylinder bore. This floating piston could move freely, a distance equal to the compression space. The intention was that, on the intake stroke, suction would open the intake valve, which had no positive opening arrangement, and draw in the mixture, which was then compressed, as in a regular auto engine. Fired by the hot tube ignition system, the force of the explosion would drive both pistons down, forcing the outer one tight against the head of the smaller one, and at the end of the stroke, the longer wall of the outer piston would strike an arm projecting into the cylinder near the opened end, moving forward the exhaust valve rod to which the arm was attached, thus pushing open the valve in the head. On the exhaust stroke, the unrestrained outer piston moved all the way to the head, expelling all of the products of combustion and pushing the exhaust valve shut again. With a bore of four inches or less, this engine, Charles believed, should develop about three horsepower and run at a speed between 350 to 400 revolutions per minute. As no ignition system had yet been provided, they prepared a four and a half inch length of one quarter inch iron pipe, 
closed at one end, and screwed the open end into the head. Heating this tube with an alcohol burner would cause ignition of the mixture when a portion of it was forced into the heated tube toward the end of the compression stroke. No attempt was made at this time to use the electrical make-and-break circuit used in their second engine, as the free piston would have wrecked the igniter parts on the exhaust stroke, and the pushrod, located on the end of the piston, would have prevented the piston from closing the exhaust valve. After keying the flywheel to the lower end of the crankshaft, Charles and Frank decided to make an attempt to run the engine. Carrying it into a back room, probably during July or August 1892, they blocked it up on horses. A carburetor had not yet been constructed, so they attempted to start the engine by spinning the flywheel by hand, at the same time spraying gasoline through the intake valve with a perfume atomizer previously purchased at a drugstore at the Massasoit house. Repeated efforts of the two men to start the engine resulted in failure. In the belief that the defects, whatever they might be, could be remedied after the engine was installed, the Duriers went ahead and mounted the engine in the carriage. To do this, they shortened the original reach of the carriage, allowing the engine itself to become the rear continuation of the reach. The four ears on the front, or open end of the engine, were bolted to the centrally located frame, with the bearing blocks in between. This frame, the same one now in the vehicle, was constructed of two pieces of angle iron, riveted and brazed together. Greater rigidity was obtained by a number of half-inch iron rods running from the frame to both front and rear axles. Because of the absence of any mounting brackets on the engine casting itself, a wooden block with a trowel on top, to receive the body of the engine, was fitted between the engine and the axle, while two U-shaped rods secured it with clip bars and nuts underneath. Beneath the flywheel was mounted the friction transmission of Charles's design. This consisted of a large drum, perhaps 12 inches in diameter, equal in length to the diameter of the flywheel, and keyed to a shaft directly under the center of the crankshaft and parallel to the axles. The diameter of the drum estimated by examination of existing features. In view of the four projections of the frame extending downward and just in front of the jack shaft position, it is likely that these supported the four jack shaft bearings. Being a bicycle manufacturer, Charles saw the need for a differential or balance gear. Accordingly, he purchased from the Pope Manufacturing Company a very light unit of the type formerly used on Columbia tricycles and installed it somewhere on the jack shaft. A small sprocket on each end of the shaft carried a chain from the larger sprockets clamped to the spokes of each rear wheel. The lower surface of the flywheel had been machined so as to form a friction disc with a one-quarter inch depression, three inches in diameter, turned in the center. The drum was positioned so that its upper surface was one-quarter inch below the face of the flywheel. Hanging loosely around the drum was an endless belt, one and one-half inches wide, first made of rather soft rubber packing material. The belt lay on the drum surface between the fingers of a shipper fork. While it lay under the three-inch depression in the center of the flywheel, the belt and the drum were at rest, but when it was moved away from that depression, the belt wedged itself tightly between the drum and the flywheel. The resulting friction caused the drum to turn and setting the vehicle into motion. 
The farther the belt was moved toward the outer edge of the wheel, the faster the drum and the vehicle moved. In September of 1892, Charles, who had contracted with a Peoria, Illinois firm to have bicycle parts manufactured, decided to move to that city. Departing on the 22nd of September, he did not return to Springfield for over two years, and thus was not able to participate in the completion and testing of the carriage. At the time of his departure, several units on the carriage were incomplete. A carburetor had not been built, nor had a satisfactory burner or belt-shifting device. Charles had experimented with various shifting levers just before leaving Springfield. However, as he reported later, he did not succeed in designing a workable mechanism. Frank Durier, now left to finish the work unassisted, continued the experiments with the belt shifter. He finally worked out a fork mounted on a carriage that was supported by two rods, each of which slid in two bearings. Although the short distance between the two bearings caused the shifter carriage to bind occasionally, the device was thought to be sufficient and was installed in front of the frame, connected to a system of cables, arms, and rods, possibly similar to the present cambar shifter, the shipper-fork carriage was moved from side to side by raising or lowering the tiller. Turning now to an efficient burner for heating the ignition tube, Frank started with an ordinary wick-type kerosene lamp with a small metal tank. Wishing to use gasoline in the lamp, he found it necessary to fabricate a number of burner units before he found a type that gave him a clean blue flame. He then found the flame to be very sensitive to drafts and easily extinguished, and devised a small shield or chimney to afford it some protection. Early in October, while still working with the burner, Frank developed a severe headache. He felt the fumes of the lamp had probably caused it, and went to his room in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Patrick on Front Street in Chicopee. After he noticed no improvement, a doctor's examination showed he had typhoid fever, and on October 5th he was admitted to the Springfield Hospital. Here he remained for one month, being discharged on November 5th. Returning to his room, he was informed that because of the fear that he might be a typhoid carrier, the Patricks preferred him to find other lodgings. He readily accepted the invitation of Mr. and Mrs. D. H. Nesbitt of Chicopee to take a room with them. After several weeks recuperating in their home, he left Springfield to visit his mother in Wyoming, Illinois. After a restful visit at home, Frank Durier returned to Springfield and finished the work on his burner. Now, only the lack of a carburetor prevented a trial of the vehicle. He recalls that he studied several gasoline engine catalogs, and one of them, a Fairbanks catalog, he believes, he saw a design that seemed to suit his needs. He decided to simplify the construction and operation of his carburetor and had a small bronze casting made to form the body of it. Inside was a gasoline chamber with two tapped openings, one to receive a pipe from the two-gallon gasoline tank mounted above the engine, the other taking a pipe to the overflow tank underneath the engine, thus maintaining the gasoline level without the use of a float valve. This latter tank had a hand pump on one end, so that the overflow gasoline could at times be pumped again into the main tank. Gasoline passed from the carburetor chamber, through a needle valve, adjusted by a knob on top, 
then through a tiny tube that entered the pipe leading to the intake valve. It is not certain whether this intake pipe was at first fitted with the choke arrangement later used with the second engine. Frank, hoping at last to be rewarded for his efforts by the sound of explosions from the engine, was ready to give the carriage an indoor trial. Standing astraddle of the reach and facing to the rear, he spun the flywheel with both hands, taking care not to get his hands caught between the wheel and the frame. His efforts were in vain, and there was a complete failure to obtain ignition. He then made a new ignition tube, nearly twice as long as the original four-and-a-half-inch tube, and turned down its wall as thin as he thought safety allowed. The thinner wall did not conduct the heat off so rapidly, and thus kept the tube hot enough to permit ignition. After this slight change, he was able to get a few occasional explosions. But he does not now believe that the engine ever operated continuously. Each explosion was accompanied by a loud knock, due undoubtedly to the movement of the free piston. Had the engine operated continuously, it is likely that the action of the free piston would have shortly wrecked the engine. Further efforts appeared unwarranted until alterations could be made. The two pistons were first pinned together into a single unit which was probably ringless, since it is believed the walls of the outer piston were too thin to admit rings. Because the piston no longer struck the exhaust valve, a short rod had to be screwed onto the piston head. This pushed the valve shut at the completion of the exhaust stroke. The remaining problem, the opening of the exhaust valve, was solved by screwing a device to the side of the cylinder which operated from the sidewise motion of the connecting rod. This device shifted a small spacer between the piston and the striker arm of the exhaust valve rod, permitting the piston to push open the exhaust valve. On alternating strokes, the spacer shifted back out of the cylinder. Therefore, no contact was made between piston and striker arm. Sometime in February 1892, the altered engine was successfully started. At last, the transmission could be tested. Will Russell had come upstairs to watch the trial, and according to a statement by him, given April 30, 1926, Frank, standing to the right of the engine and behind the rear axle, reached forward and with the combination tiller-belt-shifter, moved the belt into driving position. The carriage started forward. But as it approached the wall of the building, Frank discovered that he could not get the belt back into the neutral position. In desperation, he grasped the rear axle with both hands and was dragged a short distance, attempting to stop the machine, before it struck the wall. He had, however, sufficiently retarded it so that no damage was done. This short trial demonstrated some of the weaknesses in the friction transmission. Since the speed of the surface of the flywheel in feet per second increased in proportion to the distance of the point of contact from the center, the outer edge of the belt attempted to run faster than the inner edge. This conflict of forces not only put an undue load on the motor, causing a great loss of power, but it also created a tendency for the belt to work towards the outer edge of the flywheel. Conversely, when the operator desired to return the belt to neutral, it strongly resisted any efforts to slide it toward the center of the wheel, as Frank had learned from the wall-bumping incident. Furthermore, the rubber belt on the friction drum had worn so badly that it had to be replaced at least once during the brief experiments. 
At this point, Frank and Markham felt that the carriage was anything but satisfactory. While they were trying to decide what steps should be taken next, Frank added one last improvement to the engine. Fearing that the uncooled cylinder might suffer damage from the excessive heat, he constructed a copper water jacket in two halves, drew them together around the cylinder with clamping rings, and soldered the seams. Asbestos packing sealed the end joints where the jacket contacted the cylinder. Thinking back, Frank does not recall that he ever used a water tank with this engine, though he does remember adding water through the upper jacket opening. The engine was run only for a few brief periods following this addition. Obviously, this collection of patchwork could not fulfill their needs for an engine. First, it would be next to impossible to start if the body was placed on the running gear, as the flywheel then would be practically inaccessible. The absence of rings on the piston caused a further loss of power to the already overloaded engine. The flywheel was too light. The absence of any form of governor left the operator with no control over the engine speed. Ignition was poor, partly owing to the hot tube arrangement, and partly to the excessive distance between the engine and the carburetor. Frank wrote his brother Charles on February 6th that, in his opinion, the mixing chamber was so far from the engine that the gasoline could not be drawn into the cylinder as liquid and it was too cold to vaporize and go in as gas. Thus he had difficulty in getting the engine started. When it did start, the explosions were unmuffled. Less important to him than these defects, however, was the awkward and unsightly wooden engine mount. End of section 1